the, there's probably going to be a big rush on the vegetarian portion at this particular conference, that right? right. Yeah. Of course. We're totally stereotyping. Of course. Yeah. Conscientious people are, are all over the place here. <laughs> Housing equals, you know, ethics in every area. That's right. Um, are you vegetarian? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're done here. <laughs> Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, data journalist with Cal Matters. And I'm Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. And we're on location today, Liam. We are. Oh, they put us in an office hidden away from the public. I'm just gonna pretend this is a green room <laughs> because there's candy. And there are green things in here. There's green things and gift bags. Wow. Which we won't take. No. No. Because uh-uh. it's against all of the rules. I, just for me, it doesn't look that great. All <laughs> um, where where are we? Paint a picture for yes, the listeners. Yes, we're in the we're in the the resplendent uh, Sacramento Convention Center mm-hmm. in downtown Sacramento uh, for the annual Housing California Conference, which is the largest gathering of uh, affordable housing a- activists in the state, and they are here to learn from each other, uh, go lobby the legislature, and uh, put us in a back room. <laughs> well, they didn't confine us uh, to the green room. The entire time. Uh, later on in the episode, you'll hear we grabbed um, three homelessness experts, I'd say, from yeah. different portions of the state, one from the Bay Area, one from Los Angeles, and one from San Diego, uh, to talk about homelessness in their um, communities. Right. What makes it the same? What makes it different? Um, How it's changed over time? Exactly, exactly. What works? Right. And so, and that is very much in keeping with our theme for today's program, which is indeed uh, homelessness in California. Yes. And where the money is being spent where it isn't how hard it is to get it out the door yeah and why the numbers are going up so much yes um but first it's the avocado of the fortnight our look into the absurd slash whimsical slash vaguely amusing housing story of the past two weeks is that a fair description of the avocado yeah liam um actually uh got a response i think that's the best way of <laughs> of framing it because uh, it wasn't an interview right not not no a- i did but i didn't ask for an interview because okay. i wanted some specifics because they did a specific thing so two two of the leading candidates for governor uh a lieutenant governor and uh gavin newsom and former la mayor antonio villaragosa yes have put out there are as many adjectives one could use um ambitious <laughs> unprecedented Goals for moonshot, moonshot, which is a word that Newsom used, describing the goal for home production in California from when they take office next year through 2025, and they want to build three and a half million homes uh, within that seven-year period. Which is a number that they did not pluck out of thin air. That was the seven-year period is a little different. Yes, but um, that's the number that this McKinsey report that continues to shaped i think a lot a lot of the narrative around yeah. housing in california that's yeah. the number they decided that hey this is the number that you need to build for prices just to stabilize R- right well it's a little bit more than that it's 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 it's, it's reduced reduce the shortage in some way and it's based on right now california has is 49th in the country in per capita housing production yes and this goal would put california somewhere in the mid 40s um but but somewhere where around the production per capita that new york and new jersey do uh 
which is the only reason we should be imitating New York and New Jersey for anything. <laughs> um, but anyway, yes. uh, so you reached out to um, both uh, Gavin Lisa, and Antonio. Lisa and Antonio's campaign to talk about um, the well, plan. How do you get there, man? But yeah. like before we before we jump quite into how we get there, let's okay. just talk about like what this actually means, because. We haven't done this before. Like, this is like an, a, an unbelievable amount of housing in yes. such a short amount of time. Yes. So, uh, you know, math, three and a half million <laughs> divided by seven, 500,000 a year. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the building industry keeps very good stats on permits that are issued. Um, they've been doing it since 1954. So, Matt Levin, <laughs> can you venture a guess? <laughs> As to what the highest production in state history has been in, during that period. It w wasn't it in the 300s post-war? 322,000 in 1963, 64? Uh, I'm a little late. Somewhere okay. in there. Yeah. Um, and that's only one of two times in our history, state history, that we've eclipsed 300,000. Yes. So these guys, these that, guys. Yeah, go ahead. These guys want to do 500,000, which would mean um, uh, building at the rate that we, the highest rate that we've ever built in since modern California history. Yes. Plus an additional 178,000 homes. Yes. And that number, by the way, aside, um, is more than we've done in California, just 178,000 is more than we've done in California uh, in all but three years of the last 27. Yes, and importantly, they want to build it in places where even during the pre-recession boom times, there wasn't a ton of building. And, and they yeah. want to do it for seven years in a row. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. what, what is, I mean, the, your entire tone here yes. is avocado -y. Yes. W what, what is, what was the op most avocado -y element of these responses that you got from uh, Virgos and from Newsom? Well, well look, I mean, I, I, I think everyone should be entitled to set whatever goal that they want. I mean, yes. I, I think everyone, and I think um, in some ways, um, setting a goal that would uh, is as ambitious as this is or unprecedented as this is, is a response to the unprecedentedness of the housing crisis That's that we right. have in the state. Yeah. That All those things being said, um, I think uh, voters and the public deserve um, a pathway to explaining how you're going to get from A to B. And, you know, some of the experts, I see economists and academics and contractors and those I spoke with said, like, look, like, even if this were, even if this were practically possible, because there's obviously there's things that, got, that politicians can't control in terms of financing for developers and available land and even, to some extent, uh, labor issues, yeah. enough people to build it, yeah. you'd have to, you know, really dramatically reshape housing, how housing gets approved in California to make it A, faster, and B, much more certain. And so that means taking on many of the things that we've talked about time and again in this podcast, the third rails, the sacred cows, whatever word you want to use with yeah. respect to Prop 13, California Environmental Quality Act, yeah. local control over zoning, and those are cited as major barriers to large-scale housing production, while certainly they're politically popular and have other effects that people seem to like, yeah. uh, but they're certainly barriers for housing production. And unless and until uh, one of these guys um, proposes the dramatic changes in one or more of those areas, it, you know, the economists and others I spoke with called these empty promises. Um, let's... Let's get back when you got the response. Th these responses were emailed to you, yes. right? Yes. Uh -huh. um, one, the one from Viragosa was basically just a statement. Yes. Didn't like itemize the question. Newsom right. uh, answered 
the, the or at least have responses that I, that to, the, to the questions. Yeah. And you, by the way, we publish these responses in full on at LATimes.com, yeah. so you can definitely check them out there. And you, sh- yeah. you should. Yeah. Should they? Yes, they should. Should they? Yes. Really? Yeah. <laughs> you should, because then we'll know. What went through your head when you got uh, the responses that you got from Newsom and Villaraigosa? Well, that they didn't answer, they didn't, they didn't make the big giant, I mean, there's the big giant goal, but there wasn't the big giant policy change to back it up. I mean, and, you know, again, like, like I said, I mean, that's, that's the necessary thing. Um, the goal's great. Uh, but we're going to have to tell people how their lives are going to change in order to meet this goal, and um, both candidates right now seem unwilling to to do that. Have there been other candidates that have laid out more specific policy changes? Yeah, so um, State Treasurer John Chung um, has a different goal, um, also ambitious. It's to build uh, 1.6 million uh, low-income homes over a 10-year period. Um, and he has, you know, um, to his credit, um, put out there that these are the things that we're going to do and put a number of houses that each of those plans are going to, planks of his plans are going to create. So, you know, another housing bond. We have a housing bond on the ballot in November. He wants to put another one up two years later. Um, and so, again, we could, you can fight about the political wisdom of these ideas, but um, this is a plan that has more measurable outcomes, let's say, than, well, Certainly, three and a half million homes is a measurable outcome, but has more measurable um, uh, pathways yeah. to get you from A to B than the other two have. And so, what is the downside of getting specific? If you want to really do this, the changes that you have to make to California's political system um, are radical. And so, uh, maybe the longer you hold off, uh, the, the less mad people will be. But I don't know. You, you say we're going to end Prop 13. People are going to be really mad whether you tell them yesterday, tomorrow, or a year from now. Yes, right? but today you're yeah. not governor. That's right. You know, in the future you might be governor, right? And what do you what do you make of like Assemblymember Chu's argument and an argument floated by others, which honestly is I'm coming around on a little bit, yeah. which is let the goal be aspirational. We just need basically like a really, really big number that McKinsey um, conveniently provided so we have something to shoot for. And if you end up falling short of it, fine. But that way you can at least try to make a significant dent in this thing. Then call it that. Call it that. And then don't, you know, I mean, this is, you know, it's not quite um, an executive order. It's not quite legislation. But, you know, I don't think that people in the state treat the climate change goals as aspirational, right? I mean, those are things that people say they want to hit definitively in Mm -hmm. the end. And so, again, this is a campaign pledge, not an executive order, not legislation. Mm -hmm. But um, why should we treat these things differently until someone tells us that we should? And uh, until the candidates say that, then they should be held accountable to what they say. Moving on to our number of the fortnight, our number of the fortnight this fortnight um, is 130,000 is a, a lot of people. What type of people are we talking about? People who are experiencing homelessness in California. Well so 130,000, that sounds like a lot. Um, uh, and it is a lot. It I, is a lot. Yeah. But put it in context for us. So How much has it grown? Yeah, so just over the past year, nearly 14%, um, fueled by a huge boom in Los Angeles. Um, I believe over 20%, if not higher, in LA. Um, and 
you know, we have a quarter of the nation's homeless population now, despite yeah. having um, less than or around 12 percent of the population as, as a whole in the U.S. Yeah. And so um, this is increasingly a uh, California centered problem. There are a lot of other states, certainly <laughs> those not as big or as diverse as California, where they're making tremendous gains in homelessness. And the opposite is happening here. Yeah, you're talking about Utah. You don't know, but but really, I mean, the 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 the, the, the homeless population in the country went up this year mm-hmm. for the first time in many years, mm-hmm. and that's driven by uh, uh, primarily California, but what increases in the West Coast in, in homelessness. Something that's a little interesting to me is that so the the trend is rising here, uh, here and much of it can be attributed to a increase in prices for houses for houses, yes. Um, but this most recent year was not the year that had the largest count of home of people experiencing homelessness in California. The the numbers were actually higher in like 2004, 2005. Huh. Yeah, I know. That's I'm just adding that for that, fuller context, that's right? That's good context. And these and beyond just beyond just um the the numerical increases, we're we're seeing things happening in the state that we really haven't seen before. I like mean, what? Well, in San Diego, I think is the most prominent situation. Um, there was an outbreak of hepatitis A. Uh, you know, we have a guest later on uh, from San Diego talking about how you know third world diseases, right? Yeah. I mean, due to lack of you know, sanitary facilities, um, and you know, people died. I mean, people died in San Diego as a result of this outbreak, and it took months to get under control. Um, and so that's sort of, I guess, the most prominent, most serious thing that we've seen. But we've certainly seen um, an, a, a tremendous increase um, along Skid Row in, in, in L.A. Um, and, you know, con- continually, I mean, you know, you go to San Francisco and I think yeah. any visitor to San Francisco, any resident of San Francisco um, deals with, has to deal with homelessness or deals with homelessness one way or another every single day. It's everywhere. Um, and so um, I don't think the prominence that um, that. Uh, this issue is, is raising a promise. I think it's because it's much, much, much more visible than we've seen in the past. I think the visibility is definitely a, a component of it. Um, I'm interested to get your thoughts on this, though. Um, it seems like right now you can kind of more directly attribute the most recent rise to prices, right? Yeah. And the LA Times editorial board um, has come out with like a, a series of editorials on homelessness, many of which make this precise point that we're Yes, mental illness is a part of this. Yes, substance abuse disorder is part of this. But increasingly, it is, this is an economic issue. It is an economic issue. Yes. Yeah. And, well, uh, and yeah. the narrative has shifted a little bit on it. Right, and that strikes to sort of some of the things that we talk about every single fortnight here. Yes. Um, you know, and prices go up. I mean, I, I believe it's Zillow has a, a pretty interesting indicator that they've uh, uh, that's been relatively accurate in in predicting percent rent increases in a particular community and, and uh, the increase corresponding increase in homelessness in that community. Yeah. And so you look skeptical at the, at the causation. I plotted of that. it, yeah. and it was completely yeah. linear. Yeah, and that, so I haven't yeah. dug completely into the methodology yeah. of it. Yeah. But when I saw it, I was like, "This seems way too linear. Like, yeah. It can't just be a straight line." <laughs> sure. But anyway, sure. But we, we can at least say that there's, some there's correlation. a relationship. Correlation, there's a relationship right? for yes. sure. Yes. yes. And so you know, um, yeah. I mean, this is you know, yeah. it, 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 it this is affecting everybody. Uh, obviously, yeah. uh, the housing uh, costs are, and those at the at the lowest end of the spectrum, the the poorest among us are those who are obviously the most affected. Um, I feel like a couple years ago the state did something about this. It, it, it tried to. What happened? Yeah, so I, I did a story, and you can read the whole thing on latimes.com. Um, and, you know, almost two years ago the, the, this problem was, uh, again, um, growing. And the state said, yes, we must do something to address this. And so they said, uh, you know, we have all this money 
that's uh, a tax, a 1% income tax surcharge on millionaires. This was passed in 2004, Proposition uh, 63. And we have all this money. It's, it's supposed to go to mental health services. And great. You know, uh, we certainly need it. Um, and so we have this revenue source. Um, but certainly a large uh, part of the homelessness problem or, or, or part of the dealing with uh, uh, homelessness issues, there are a number of folks who have mental health care, uh, mental health care issues. And so we will redirect this money um, uh, from this uh, uh, from this pot uh, into a bond, a two billion dollar bond, which we will then use to fund permanent supportive housing up and down the state. And two billion is a lot of money. It's not a little bit. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's uh, what's been described to me as the largest state homelessness investment in years. Uh, was under this proposal. And, and so, the, so just for context, the state spends annually, what, around like 500, 600 million? So the the plans for next year, in, including this money, is roughly around 700 million. Including this money? Including this money. Okay. It's around 700 million. Okay. And this money, this is this is about, you know, uh, 260 is what they hope to spend yeah. next year. So around uh, 500. From this bond. Okay. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, but they're not right now uh, able to spend money from this bond, and this is what this is, this story gets into. So uh, bond passes um, summer of 2016. Uh, you know, everyone, uh, the legislature claps. That you know, but some people who are not clapping um, are a, a number of advocates in the, in the in the mental health community yeah. who say, "Look, you know, you promised voters this was going to go to treatment, and it's not. You know, and you're not allowed to do it. And you know, we have an opinion." from 2006 from the attorney general's office that says you're not allowed to redirect treatment money um, legally to building housing. And so, um, you know, there was a lawsuit uh, uh, filed by a a retired attorney in in Sacramento who's representing herself, uh, a mental health advocate, um, and to say you can't do it. Where do you where do you kind of see this going? Like, do you see this continuing to be hung up in the courts for well, a it's, hung, it's hung up in the courts. There's like there's a hearing in July. Um, okay. No one knows when this is going to end. I mean, the state housing officials told me that they don't know. Okay. Um, and so I think there's potentially some hope it could end at the end of the year. Uh, but then there's could be appeals, and also it might not might not go the state's way. In That's which right. case, you know, then you're kind of stuck. Uh, but this this sort of massive allocation that most of the state has done in years uh, in this issue, uh, and what it's counting on now for the most amount of spending that it wants to do in the coming year is tied up in this in this system. And in, in the meantime, and this is what you're referencing, but some of the people that we talk to here, yes. right, they are they have already kind of banked on some of this funding coming into them. So what's really interesting, um, and I quoted a, a homeless services provider in L.A. in my story who said, uh, planning to build 60 uh, units um, near, near Hollywood, um, permanent supportive housing, saying, you know, we'd counted on this money, you know, in, including matching, you know, funds from, uh, you know, the, the L.A. region to help build this project. Well, okay, if we don't have this money, which we don't or we can't count on, yeah. now we have to try to find other pots of money. And so she applied to use some of the state's cap-and-trade dollars, which comes from the, its, its climate change program, to help kind of fill a funding gap that she was hoping that that was going to come from this, uh, this homelessness bond. The problem there is she sort of lamented that, you know, um, her project is perfectly suited for the homelessness money, but is now taking money, potentially taking money from projects that, you know, could otherwise uh, use um, uh, valuable, precious state subsidy. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people in the state who may feel, I feel like every time I go to the ballot, I'm approving some type of new funding for homelessness services. And that's been the case for 20 years. And I haven't seen any type of tangible result. Is that a prejudiced, incorrect notion, or is there a degree of truth to that? 
I think it depends on how you want to um, characterize it. I mean, I think, you know, there, there, but there have been federal budget cuts, you know, that state took away, as we've discussed in the podcast before, the redevelopment program, which provided a billion dollars for, for mm -hmm. low-income housing, including homelessness housing. And so maybe these have just filled the gaps. Um, but also, too, I, you, know, they're, they're, you know, getting the money is one part of the challenge, as we talk later in some of these interviews, actually putting that, like building the houses and finding land and yes. citing it and getting the, the projects themselves approved is a whole other ballgame that the money in itself can't help. Um, real quick, uh uh, talk to me about um, the uh, bill that uh, mayors around the state are pushing here in the state capitol. Yeah, so there's there's two bills, um, one being run through the assembly and one being run through the Senate. Uh, the sort of the the direct push from the largest eleven mayors in the state uh, is a billion and a half dollars um, of just one time money that would go right now as block grants. So like here you go, cities, yep. um, to deal with homelessness issues, and the cities could spend it as they see fit. Um, and then there's a Senate bill um, that uh, that is two billion dollars uh, uh, of one time money, sort of like uh, you know it's not an ongoing revenue source, just an immediate. One, one time revenue source that would be towards homelessness and low income housing. And this money is supposed to come from um, the magical the, surplus. Yeah, the this magical surplus is sort of six billion plus that the governor has said will will have in this coming budget year. Now, the governor, um, uh, you know, when he announced his, his budget, said, look, like, you know, we got to keep hold of this money. Um, you know, there's potentially an economic downturn coming our way, which uh, is not a crazy thing to say. And so there will be a fight over this. Um, and we'll sort of see how it ends up. But it is interesting that the big ask this year of uh, the largest cities in the state or state, please help us with homelessness. And where does state leadership, um, state legislative leadership kind of fall on these bills? Is this one of their priorities too? I... Um, I'm seeing, to be frank, um, more momentum than I thought I would, given what the legislature did last year in the money area. Interesting. You know, you know I think when we spoke uh, around the beginning of the year about the legislation that was going to be coming through yeah. on housing, we sort of all, both wrote off the idea of there being more money. Yeah. Because there was money approved last year, and it's typically hard to get a, you know to get money bills approved. Yeah. Um, but but uh, you know I, I I would be shocked to see two billion. Yeah. I would be shocked to see a billion and a half. Um, at this point, I wouldn't be shocked if it if it was higher than zero. Okay. Um, and, and we should also say so the, the reason uh, the attitudes of uh, Tony Atkins and Anthony Brendan are important is because it's not just the governor and the legislature fighting over that six billion. It's everybody wants a piece of that six billion. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. Anything else? I think let's get to the interviews. Yes, let's do it. Okay. My name is Ann English. I work for CSH, the Corporation for Supportive Housing. We're a national nonprofit uh, with hubs all over in 26 different cities. Our headquarters are in New York. I work in the Los Angeles office, uh, and I've been working there for four years. And your experience before that? Uh, I've been working as a nonprofit provider in the homeless services space for a long time. <laughs> you don't want to go into detail on that? Um, Our previous guest, she was in this for over 20 years. So. Can you beat that? That's, that's, exactly, that's yeah. probably exactly what I would say. Yeah. All right. So well, let's just start really basic. Uh, what's supportive housing? That was going to be my question. Mm. Uh, supportive housing is 
permanent affordable housing coupled with wraparound services that are tailored to the needs of the individual. It is the gold standard for housing uh, for chronically homeless and individuals that have special needs. So uh, basically it's the same as affordable housing, it's just coupled with services and it's permanent. Um, so there, you know, in the past, there was transitional housing, there was all this, these steps you had to go through, and then you got into affordable housing, supportive housing, you know. That's like the long-term uh, affordable housing. It, tenants have leases, just like anybody else, but they just have the wraparound services, and they're voluntary. And, and well, the, re the reason it's the gold standard is because that actually has been shown to work in getting people off the streets. Well, right? in yeah. fact, yeah. It, it's been shown not only to, to work in getting people off the streets, but it's been shown for a really long time that it's way more cost effective than leaving people on the streets to access emergency services such as you know jails and emergency rooms and and things of that nature and in fact i think a lot of us in the homeless space were really uh, excited um, when all of the reports started coming out about how cost effective it was many years ago because we thought yeah, well, we live in America. We care about fiscal responsibility, so people are really going to eat this up. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, it's taken some time for it to, uh, to really become uh, the gold standard recognized that way. Um, yeah. what, what types of services specifically are we talking about? And, and who's providing them and how expensive are they? Um, so it's all different kinds of services because it is, again, really tailored to the individual's needs. So it can be, you know, mental health services. It can be substance abuse services. It can be job services. It can be child care services. It's any of those things. And there's community providers. Okay. So the original idea, you know, when they closed all of the institutions, right? The, the mental health institutions. Yeah, yeah, the mental health institutions was that there would be community-based services, right? Um, which, How did that go? Yeah, <laughs> I, I, it didn't. So, <laughs> right. yeah, so there are, though, a lot of community providers. They're just, I mean, what one of the great things about supportive housing is that there is that infrastructure that allows people to partner in a very um, cohesive way and coordinate all the services so that people aren't going from place to place to place to get different services and filling out different uh uh, applications and being told, you know, different, there's just been a lot of fragmentation. You know, there's a lot of resources and services out there, but you're talking about individuals that maybe don't necessarily, necessar well, look, I have a hard time at the DMV, you hmm. know, if I were suffering from any kind of uh, trauma or anything like that, I think, um, you know, uh, I'd have a much harder time. And uh, what what percentage roughly of like L.A.'s current homeless population is in need of supportive services? And has that changed recently kind of as the makeup of L.A.'s homeless population has changed? So the, the statistics are that um, about a third of the homeless population is chronically homeless. Um, and I don't I think what's changed is that it's far fewer now because we're now seeing because of housing prices and all of the, you know, confluence of things that have mm. happened, more people are falling into homelessness. So, for example, in my um, program that uh, I have with uh, Speak Up with the individuals that are formerly homeless, it's now skewing much older. So mm. people are becoming homeless now. I mean, I have a woman who's here with me. She became homeless at 59, you know, for the first time. Mm. And then, you know, because that was not 
something that she knew, no support system, no family, all of that stuff. I mean, it took her years to get into housing, right? Um, but she didn't have, she wasn't like one of those people that was on the streets forever. Mm-hmm. And tons of people like that, families, elderly, you know, anybody on a fixed income. There's just, it's not affordable. It's, com- you know, so, yeah. so we're here in Sacramento mm-hmm. to talk to people about that. It's yeah. not going to get any better or easier. And uh, in fact, if we don't address everyone, um, you know, it's just going to get worse. So, so L.A. is, speaking of that, uh, L.A. is seen as the epicenter of things getting worse on homelessness, um, not just in California, but really driving uh, increases around the country. What, why, why is that? There have been increases. There was like a 23% increase last year. In L.A.? In L.A. Yeah. Um, and what I will say, again, what I was saying, that there are different people becoming homeless, a lot more, quote, unquote, you know, episodic regular people that are just losing a job or, you know, that are a paycheck away are falling into homelessness. I mean, we housed more people last year than we've ever housed. Huh. So how, how do you kind of triage that? Right. There's these different. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, there's I, limited resources, right? Well, people need different types of resources. Who, need, who gets the resources first? So. That's a great question. What I want to say is that right now, we do have more resources. Um, you know, just recently we passed some legislation that, uh, you know, $1.2 billion housing bond in the city of L.A. and Measure H, which, you know, is like, uh, you know, over 10 years, uh, we're hoping to house a minimum of 45,000 people. Now, We've done all that, right? The voters have decided to tax themselves because they're concerned about the issue, which is great. The issue now is citing housing and nimbyism, hmm. right? So we have the resources. We have a lot. I mean, the, the city and the county are working together in ways that are, have not ever happened in my tenure in Los Angeles. And yes, it's unfortunate that it's taken you know, a long time and a lot of crises, but there is new leadership. There is a lot happening and we're incredibly hopeful. The biggest issue right now is educating communities around what supportive housing is, the benefits of it, the cost effectiveness of it. I'm sorry, I'm going to rant now. Yeah. No. And this is a, we've, we've never heard a rant about NIMBYs before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, you know, I mean, I understand. Do you know what I mean? I understand because I worked in Hollywood when, you know, we were putting together a group to combat this. And there were business owners that had people, you know, laying in their streets. But again, this is a very small percentage of the folks that we're talking about and not... And I'm not even saying that those folks shouldn't be helped. Obviously, they should. And there are different ways to help them. But you're talking about not putting housing in your community when you're not even talking about the people. You're, you're afraid of the people that are not the people that you're thinking of. Which So when, when market rate developers complain about uh, nimbyism, do you like roll your eyes and you're like, you have no idea what it's like <laughs> to try to get like a shelter or some other, or permanent supportive housing? Because that's a different conversation, right? That's a different conversation at a city council. Completely, completely different conversation. And not, I mean, it's amazing how convoluted everybody's ideas about what's going on and what housing is and what market, what's affordable. Right. I mean, affordable housing means 
all kinds of things, right. least of which a lot of the time is affordable, actually. So, uh, yeah, it's really difficult, but there's no question that we have to get into, you know, we're doing a lot of work right now, getting into communities, helping people that have overcome homelessness, that, uh, you know, have a different story than what people are used to, get in front of other people and talk to them and look them in the eye and say, this is my story, you know, and maybe it's not the story you think, you think that you know, but this is the story of hundreds of people. I think in people's minds, their image of sort of the worst case scenario or situation for homelessness, um, not just uh, in California or in LA, but across the country is Skid Row. They think homelessness, oh, it's Skid Row, right? And so obviously Skid Row has been around for, for, for a very long time. Do you foresee a time when it isn't uh, in the way that it is now? Yes. And how does that work? Um, how that works is building housing regionally and triaging people so that they are able to stay in their communities because the reason people have been funneled into Skid Row is because there are no services and there is no housing and there's nothing in their communities. People, I know people that struggled, that stayed homeless because they did not want to go to Skid Row mm -hmm. and that's where the services were. Mm. So it's really about everybody sort of you know, saying, you know, we have some issues around economic stability in our community. We need to help each other and help the people that are in our community. Most people want to stay in their own community. You know, so yes, if people were not continually funneled to Skid Row, I this I don't think most of the people that are there want to be there, regardless of what someone may think. I don't. Uh, I don't. My personal belief is that people don't choose to be homeless. What they choose is not to be uh, forced into something that, they're, that, that is uncomfortable or, you know, not okay for them. And uh, for a lot of the time that we've been doing any of this work, we've been directing people to shelters that are dangerous. Women, you know, and children can't survive in those situations, elderly people can't survive in those situations, and even, you know, people with disabilities and challenges. So yeah. saying that people are resistant just really misses an entire aspect of the conversation. So my name is Laura Guzman. I'm the director of the Continuum of Care for Everyone Home in Alameda County, and we are in charge of doing um, both the application for federal funds um, for Alameda County as well as the homeless count. Um, I've been in this position for a year and prior to that I worked for 22 years in homeless services in San Francisco and I was also uh, a member of the Continuum of Care Board. So 22 years, long time. Um, how has the homeless population in the Bay Area changed from when you first started working in this field until now? I joined uh, you know, San Francisco Service Provision in the mid-90s. I was actually working with um, HIV-positive people who were homeless. Uh. And although it was uh, a, a considerable number of people, um, I think we could have never imagined where we are at right now in terms of numbers. Okay. And San Francisco, having been um, um, a city that uh, historically had rent control and affordable rentals, um, and also a tradition of actually we, we did we did build housing for low-income and no-income people, um, you know, much faster than, for example, Alameda County. In some ways, we were protected uh, for a while, and the numbers kept 
you know, if you start looking at the numbers, they kept kind of the same, although they continue to slightly increase. And to the point of, you know, before I left San Francisco, I think it's one of the cities most impacted in terms of numbers of population versus the ratio between the population and right. people who are homeless. Right. Uh -huh. um, in the East Bay, where I lived for the last 30 years, um, I would say about five, five years ago, you would not see encampments. You would not see the visibility, not that there weren't homeless individuals, but even within the last two years, from the 2015 count to the 2017 count, the uh, increment was of 39% of the amount of people that are now, you know, we're counting wow. as homeless, but also within that, the fact that 70% are unsheltered. Oh. So I think that, you know, the, the housing crisis was crippling slowly and definitely much faster in San Francisco where always housing was, you know, even though there was rent control and we had um, production of low-income, no-income housing, uh, I think it was always higher, but we always had a great stock in the East Bay. And many of us actually worked in San Francisco and live in the East Bay because it was much more affordable. Right. So it isn't within the last, I would say, definitely the last five years. I, I want to say 10 perhaps that you start seeing this trend, but in the last five that this explosion of both um, what in San Francisco was what I call a tsunami, I actually call it a tsunami, mm. where the numbers keep crippling, where we're seeing, um, for example, I worked at a drop-in center, I was um, just chatting with someone, so we will have our sizable population that has been homeless for a decade, what we call chronically homeless, but slowly we start seeing every day someone that just became homeless for the first time. And the numbers started to look more like 60, 40. 40% were newly homeless people. They were wow. elders. Wow. They were disabled people. They were people with HIV that we housed wow. 20 years before. And what, what, would, what would you attribute that to? Well, at some point it was impossible to pay a reasonable rent in a hotel to pay a reasonable rent anywhere in San Francisco. And I think that San Francisco is at a, as a tipping point because there might not be a way back. Wow. So what does that look like then if there's not a way back? Yeah. Well, I, I may want to actually look at Alameda County in contrast with San Francisco. What it looks like in no way back is that you can only actually start doing what we call kind of measures to manage homelessness. Mm. Um, what it looks like when there is no way back is that you start, you know, having to really create uh, temporary solutions like navigation centers, that's San Francisco's model, right, and, and, and other cities. So the model in which you accept the fact that people will be unsheltered for a long time. Wow. And the reason why I want to compare with Alameda is that Alameda saw this, like I said, tsunami and tremendous increase since 2015 uh, to 2017. In two years, we went from 4,040, that was the count, um, to 5,600 in 2017, so it was an increase of 39%, um, out of which 69% are unsheltered because Alameda County had a history of low-income stock, um, of rental, you know, re a rental market. Um, has a, the whole county has about 1,500 shelter beds, so we don't have a large infrastructure right. uh, for people who are unsheltered. And so all of a sudden, in this incredible increase, we started to see them visibly, homelessness, where you've never seen it before. Mm. And, uh, and then there's a couple of interesting things about Alameda County, and I don't know if that compares, uh, definitely does not compare with Los Angeles, um, in the sense that the perception is, though, that what you see most visible is encampments. Mm. But when we actually did the homeless count, only 15% of people 
are living in encampments, even though it's where sometimes a lot of political attention right. gets to it. Well, it's very visible, which obviously. Be, exactly, because yeah. yeah. it's because you know it's the tents and the numbers that right. you know the, the tent city kind of evolving in the United States. But it's interesting to know that um, a good almost thirty percent are living in in cars. Mm. So we have now families and single folks living in cars, and uh, the largest majority majority are living alone and they're not in encampments. Um, but this visibility also, I think, brought a different kind of attention to homelessness where we are putting in some ways, what do we do in this temporary framework instead of really looking, Alameda still doesn't have the level of numbers yeah. in comparison to the population that LA or San Francisco has. So how do we focus right now to actually prevent this continuous um, jumping of people going into homelessness? How do we create more homes and subsidies for people to be able to stay? And also, how do we um, dignify and really create policies that you know, may meet the basic human needs of people who are in shelters? Mm. So, so how do you? I mean, how, especially on the preventive end, which it, I mean, it kind of sounds like, you know, from your experience, you're, you're almost kind of viewing what's happening in Alameda. It's like, oh my God, like this is a chance to kind of stop this before it becomes San Francisco, right? Where there's no way back. So what, what are the specific preventive measures that you can that you can make. So, so and, and before I talk about the measures, one thing I want to say is it's very interesting because in the homeless world, we don't talk about prevention and sometimes in the housing world, we don't talk about prevention. Mm, so mm -hmm. the number one most important thing is that we start talking about prevention. So we recently did uh, at Everyone Home, we started doing some preliminary analysis about by looking at data, not of people who get displaced, and this is important, not everybody gets displaced. Some people enter homelessness as a result of not, not being able to pay the high rents. So for those that are really at risk of homelessness, and usually it's people with fixed incomes, mm. people who are really high rent burden, mm -hmm. um, we start to look at data and we see that the number, you know, out of these numbers that we're talking about, a large chunk of people are entering that if we did what we call a light touch, meaning having flexible funds, so really like rent assistance or like what are you talking about? Well, now? we talk about rental assistance, but at that moment what we call light touch means we, we calculated that it's about, you know, for the number of people that may enter the system, about 2,500 or so, with some light touch, which means it's flexible assistance to keep that person housed at that moment. So it could be rental assistance for a couple of months or, or back rent, but it could also be the need to help with paying the bills ah, because I'm staying with my like grandpa. Like utilities or right, something. Right, I yeah, owe my it. grandpa $300 because I haven't been able to pay my contribution. Perhaps yeah. that that assistance, which might not be a lot of money. And that's what we've been talking, starting to talk about. Alameda County just actually increased the amount of these flexible funds through boomerang funds, mm -hmm. uh, which came from the redevelopment. The um, dissolution, yeah. From the dissolution. Uh -huh. And so we're actually been talking to HCD in California to do the same. The key is that they're flexible, because otherwise, if they're the typical rental assistance, they, you know, funds um, might be very restrictive. So, so you, could, you could only pay it towards rent, but not necessarily utilities, not necessarily to pay, pay a, a, you know, a past due bill for something or things like that. Correct. Yeah. So we, we feel that doing that intense attention, then we don't keep having more people entering the system. So that's one of the things that we feel that we need to start paying attention. I'm sure in this conference you're going to hear about Costa Hawkins. We really believe that Costa Hawkins needs to be repealed. And again, Costa Hawkins is not about rent control. It's about the localities making decisions about what makes sense. And this is really important because I recently looked at the charts about in the Bay Area, yeah. you know, where the cities are in some ways different about how they do some of tenant protections, yeah. but it would allow us to actually strengthen tenant protections so that in combination with flexible funds, we're doing some measures to really keep people housed. Mm. 
Um, so th this is the last thing I want to ask because um, it's it's personal to me. So you said you coordinated some of the one night counts. Uh, well, it's it's going to be my new role. I have worked in a lot of homeless counts. It's okay. my new role. It's for 2019, I will be the coordinator. The coordinator of it. Uh, have you done one of those? Uh, I've not been on one. Okay. Have you have you gone in? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I've done one. Okay. I did one in Seattle. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. It. The, is there any way to make that more reliable? Because <laughs> when I when I was doing it, I was like, this does seem like probably the only way to do this, uh, but it doesn't seem like the most accurate way. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So maybe you could start by describing how the one night count is done. And then is there any way to do it better? It's a great question. So, so typically... Uh, the, CO, the continuum of care uh, vary in how they implement the requirements from the mandate. The mandate it has to be one night or one day towards the end of January. Um, and this is a federal mandate. This is a federal mandate. Yeah. So the, it's the way that had requires the continuum of care to provide that information in order to receive the federal and funds. And this is all across the country. And that's across the country. Right. And so um, typically what we call it is, uh, so it's a visual count. So yeah. you're basically relying on the people who are do, mostly volunteers to count. Yeah. And then jurisdictions vary about, do you cover an entire area? San Francisco covered the entire city. Alameda this year, in 2017, actually used um, guides that are people experiencing homelessness who were huh. much more reliable in terms of taking volunteers to places where otherwise people, actually invisible, invisible folks that were you know camping and they were not visible. Mm. What we think is gonna be more reliable after this year is that every COC is implementing coordinated entry and there is a mandate to enter real data from our rich workers that are really sampling people who are in shelter. Now, might take time until the time that all jurisdictions are entering real data, but eventually the homeless count can be can disappear if we really have data in our homeless management information systems, which are now mandated by HUD to be part of this coordinated entry or this ability to serve the most vulnerable. So in, in other words, right now, when a homeless person, a person experiencing homelessness, excuse me, enters a shelter, it is up in the air whether that shelter is going to input any type of data about that person. That's correct. That is correct. Yeah. And now with coordinated entry, in Alameda, shelters are going to be part of our system of care. Eventually, that's going to be required. Mm -hmm. But I was going to add you one more thing about the reliability of the count. We, we know, and there have been, you know, you can do calculations. Usually, the count numbers are about half or a third of what the actual number is. So in Alameda, for example, we've been looking at the numbers. So we had 5,600 people. But if you look at the data about how many people enter each day, yeah. We came out with about 10,000. So we would say that probably for Alameda, and a much critical number is 10,000. San Francisco recently said, I mean, they quote 7,000, but they wow. say 18,000 people are homeless wow. in San Francisco. Yeah, my name is Stephen Russell. I'm the executive director of the San Diego Housing Federation. We represent affordable housing. Uh, well, we advocate for affordable housing in the county of San Diego. So, Steve, uh, San Diego has been among the most prominent news with respect to homelessness over the past year, uh, mainly given due to the hepatitis A outbreak um, that, that, that struck the city. Can you t talk to us about um, how that started uh, uh, and how that became the crisis that it was? 
Well, it, it clearly it was just people living on the streets where they were, where there were no facilities provided. So we had a, just an uptick in, in the number of homeless over the years. Uh, rents have been spiraling out of control. People have been economic refugees in their own city. Uh, that concentration of people living without sanitary facilities is basically a formula for third world diseases and hepatitis being one of them. So that was the short genesis of how that took to take place. I give a lot of credit, by the way, to Lisa Halverstadt at the Voice of San Diego for really beginning to track that story mm -hmm. and to bring shame on the city fathers for not acting sooner to prevent it uh, when warnings had been out there. And I think she actually saved lives. So so how long was it until this the, the outbreak was, was contained and, ha and how many people um, were affected by it? Now, now, now I'm going to struggle here a little bit with the actual numbers who, who died, but there was a good number of deaths. Uh, we started, it was first really noticed in May, uh, but this, I don't think the authorities took it seriously until late summer. Uh, with aggressive uh, deployment of public restrooms, temporary restrooms and hand washing stations in September, October, really by November, December, it seemed like the, you could see that the curve had been bent in terms of the number of new infections, uh, and we are considered now past the crisis, technically speaking. And there's still hand-washing stations all over the city and a, a larger number of restrooms, although even those have reduced in number substantially. Another part of that was uh, some bridge shelters that were put up, three tents, about 750 or so uh, people that could be housed. Uh, that would provide an opportunity for the police to dislocate encampments, uh, wash the sidewalks, which was another part of the whole treatment, was uh, actually dispersing camps uh, along streets and then washing down the sidewalk, sidewalks with bleach solutions. Uh, there was an initial fear that the worst thing you could do in the middle of an epidemic was actually scatter the vector population. Yeah. Uh, we don't know that that ultimately had as negative an impact as it might have, but it clearly made it difficult to track individuals uh, and, and follow up with their health regime to make sure that they, that they had fully recovered and taken, taken the, uh, the treatment that they needed to take. How, how kind of has the debate around homelessness shifted in response to the Hep A outbreak, if, if at all? Well, I think it brought it home to a lot of people who thought that they were somehow immune if they could simply walk past people in the streets. It brought it home to people that they were, in fact, threatened by it. So it, it, un, it, un, it re revealed, a, I think, a latent empathy in the population mm. uh, that is actually uh, very encouraging. We did some polling around issues of homelessness, and uh, over 80% of, of uh, registered voters felt that we should be doing something about housing the homeless. That jumped up from maybe uh, in the high 60s just a few months earlier. We did polls in May and November related to a bond measure we're working on. And that level of empathy was the one thing that really made me feel good about the city we live in. That, that regardless of if... The did that level of empathy surprise you? That it rose above 80%? Yes, it did. That, oh, these were people that were actually at 73% willing to pay to, to house these people. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just a matter of feeling concerned about it. 80 per, plus percent wanted, thought something should be done. 73% said they'd be willing to pay for it. So let's unpack a little bit about some of the sort of the, I guess, the temporary or bridge solutions you, you referenced. You said that there was concern about uh, dislocation uh, and sort of breaking up camps and, but, you know, police involvement. Can you, can you explain a little more about, about that? Well, so long as there were not sufficient shelter beds in the city of San Diego, the police were legally constrained from, from enforcing the overnight encampment rules. And what, what are the overnight encampment rules? You cannot stay. There's hours between, I think, 5 a.m. and, and uh, 7 p.m. Uh, that you're not allowed to camp on city streets. I don't okay. know the exact hour straight, yeah. but essentially it's, a, it's, a, it's an overnight. It's, it's to allow people to sleep overnight, but no longer. And you can't stay successive nights. However, without any shelters to go to, the police were powerless to actually ticket them to court order. 
once the shelters were in place, the three tents, the police made enormous sweeps through all of those communities mm -hmm. and, and just dislocated people. So we started to see a surge of homeless in second ring suburbs surrounding downtown. The concentration of homeless was, of course, in the downtown area. As, as uh, police started making sweeps, we started seeing them in much larger numbers in neighborhoods surrounding downtown North Park, Hillcrest. Balboa Park was actually being trampled, literally trampled to death by the number of homeless who were sleeping in, this, in the central urban park. Um, so that was, you know, uh, and, and City Hall, which has a large plaza in front of it, I assume your listeners are all over the state, uh, large plaza in front of it where it was a, a, a congregation of homeless for months on end. And now with the police action, it is absolutely uh, emptied of, of homeless people, panhandlers and other, and other folks. Huh. Uh, on one hand, as an employee there, it was something distressing to have to walk through. But the, but the fact that the, the, the legislators, the lawmakers, the city fathers had to walk through that every day to me was an important thing. People had to see that this was happening. And in some ways, it's been swept out of view. So you talked about a potential bond measure. What sort of long-term plans do, do you, your group have and others in the city have to address this issue? Well, so we as the Housing Federation believe very strongly that the solution to homelessness is the provision of homes. Someone is no longer homeless once they have a home to live in. So what we're proposing is a bond measure. It would be a property tax. It would cost about $19 per 100000 valuation. And we believe it would produce between 5,500 and 10,000 new units altogether, a third of them permanent supportive housing, so that's the chronically homeless, folks who have been out on the streets or have other confounding conditions, uh, a third of it for seniors, veterans, people with disabilities, people who are increasingly falling into homelessness. There is no safety net. We think that that 2,500 homes will start to, to put that safety net together, and another 2,500 homes for families uh, with lots of children, so large bedroom counts, which are almost impossible to find, and we feel very strongly, uh, the evidence shows that, that People who experience homelessness as children go on through their lives to, to have housing instability and homelessness as part of their as part of their lives. Um, uh, so we're, what we're hoping to do with this measure, we've done some polling. We've shown that there's very strong support for it. Uh, we've gone to city council. The city attorney has been directed to draft the first draft of the, of the ordinance, and we're hoping in July to go in front of city council and have them put it on the November ballot. So uh, I used to work in San Diego. I'm covering politics there. I know neither the elected officials nor the publics are too pleased generally with taxes. Um, how do you expect uh, tax increases? How do you expect to overcome that? Well, we did polling in, in November, and 73% uh, of, the, of the likely electorate for, for November 2018 said they were willing to pay this price for, these, for this outcome. It's simple. It's a simple plan. It's a, it's a permanent set of, uh, uh, I won't say solutions, but, but we're addressing it with permanent homes. Uh, so for one thing, we think that the, the electorate is primed. As we walk through the city, as we talk with different uh, uh, interest groups, we find a great level of support for this kind of an approach. It seems broad. It seems fair. So what folks were asking for, if you covered the linkage fee debate back uh, three, four years ago, there was calls at that time from the industry to have the broadest-based, fairest tax measure possible to address this problem. They're looking at this and they're seeing that this may be the measure that they were describing. So, so does the business industry support this? Chamber of Commerce, other groups in the city? Well, there's, there's a bit of confusion right now because another measure is being put forward. Uh, there's a citizen's initiative. They're gathering signatures as we speak that would uh, expand the raise TOT to both expand the convention center and provide some homelessness dollars and provide some roads and streets dollars. So that is continuing to move forward, and that has created a, a certain level of uncertainty around where people's support is going to be just because... Uh, folks are afraid that the ballot might be overcrowded with housing measures. In addition mm -hmm. to the statewide housing measures, right. the affordable homes, the Veterans and Affordable Housing Act, 
we're proposing to have something on the measure on the ballot and the TOT and convention center. Uh, so that that's what I was going to ask about. Yeah. Is it do you worry about kind of housing housing bond uh, exhaustion? Fatigue, right. <laughs> well, I, we're not worried for our measure so much because the polling has been so strong. Uh, we know that the folks we're going to be trying to turn out for the statewide measure are going to vote a ticket. They are there because they're concerned about housing. It is the foremost issue in the minds of people everywhere I go. And so I think that there is room for more than one measure there. How many? I don't know. Uh, what's, is, is there anything unique about San Diego's homeless population and, and the issues they confront compared to other homeless populations uh, across the state? You know, I'm not as familiar with homelessness in other cities. I will say we have a disproportionate number of veterans, and so a lot of the issues that they bring uh, to, to their condition are maybe uh, stronger, more prevalent in San Diego. Uh, but other than that, I think that, that, that across the state of California, we're talking about people mostly who are economic refugees, who have become homeless in the cities where they're currently living, and who just need that, that support to get off the street and supportive services so that they stay housed. Thanks very much for listening. I'm Liam Dillon with the LA Times. Find me on Twitter at Dylan Liam. And I'm Matt Levin with Cal Matters. You can find me on Twitter at M Levin Reports. And thank you to the folks at who put on the Housing California conference. Yes, this was great, and uh, we'll see you in a couple weeks. <laughs>